0: Palm Sunday begins with shouts of joy, of Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It's an exciting, thrilling day. Jesus finds himself at the top of the Mount of Olives on a donkey coming down with his followers, with excited followers and others who've gathered there putting cloaks before him, waving palm branches as he makes his way down. It's a scene that Matthew describes for us that means to tell us that the Messiah has arrived, the Messiah is coming to Jerusalem. He comes down with those shouts of joy of Hosanna following him down the Mount of Olives to the Kidron Valley and then on up into the city of Jerusalem where suddenly things change, take a turn. The shouts of joy become the silence of fear. Matthew says that the entire city is in turmoil and there's that ominous question, who is this? It's a jarring, almost dizzying moment from joy to fear. What's happening here? Have you ever experienced something like that where everything is wonderful and then all of a sudden out of nowhere something happens that just shifts your mood, changes your mind? I experienced something like that when I was in high school. Not quite as dramatic as what happened to Jesus, but still I could feel that same sort of jarring turnaround. The summer between my sophomore and junior year of high school, our high school band was invited to play at an event outside of the Martison Memorial. Do you know about that? It's near Bastogne, Belgium. It's there in honor of the Americans who gave their lives in the Battle of the Bulge. Well, our band flew into Amsterdam, then took a bus to Brussels where we stayed for a couple of nights, and then we bust out about an hour and a half out to the city of Bastogne, where we lined up to begin a parade. We were gonna march through the narrow streets of Bastogne, stop in a, in a town center, and give a brief concert, and then march all the way out to the, to the memorial to participate in the celebration and the remembrance there. Well, we had to march in fours, columns of four, because it was so narrow, we played our normal parade set, and then we got to the, to the town hall, to the town center, where we played this brief concert. I think it was four, maybe five songs. The crowd was there, there were hundreds of people gathered. They really appreciated what we did. They gave us a great round of applause, and our band director did something that I think was brilliant to this day. He looked at us and he said, Encore, let's play Sweet Caroline. Do you remember Sweet Caroline by Neil Diamond? I'm sure you do. Well, as soon as those first notes were hit, you know them. Na 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 na. I won't sing anymore. But as soon as we began those opening those opening notes, the crowd went crazy. And when we began playing on the first verse, they joined in and they sang the words in English with us. It was a goosebump, joy-filled moment. Unbelievable. And then when we were done, they just cheered and as we marched our way out out of town on our way up to the memorial, they patted us on the back and waved American flags. It was a Just an amazing moment of joy. Our mood shifted dramatically when we arrived at the memorial. Maybe some of you have been there. It's a five-pointed American-style star. It looms on a hill in the distance. We gathered with the others who were there for the the ceremony. We played the Star-Spangled Banner. And then we learned during the ceremony about the, the battle itself. It lasted five weeks. 78,000 soldiers were injured or killed in that brutal battle. It was overwhelming to hear some of the stories. At the very end of the, of the presentations and the stories that were shared, our first chair trumpet walked up onto the stage, and she played taps. I was a smart aleck, 15-year-old kid. I wasn't exactly a flag-waving patriot or anything like that but I'm not embarrassed to say that my eyes were filled with tears. We'd gone from this amazing moment of joy to this solemn reminder of the sacrifice made by so many. Now, it's not quite as dramatic as what Jesus and and his followers experienced on Palm Sunday, but it was something like that. It was this jarring, uh, sort of dizzying turn from absolute joy to fear and, and ominous worry. Who is this? What's going to happen next? Let's step back for a moment though. Let's consider the crowd that's following Jesus. A, a cynic might say, well, they're following Jesus because they, they've seen him do amazing things. He's healed people and he gives beautiful sermons and teachings and then during the feeding of the 5,000, they were all fed, they were hungry and were fed, got a free meal out of it. So they're just following Jesus along for the show, for the, for the free food and the, and the free things that he, he puts on display. I've preached a couple of sermons like that, frankly, and I, I kind of regret that I did. Yes, some of these same who are filled with joy will turn and hide and, and abandon Jesus in his most difficult moments. But I think at the center of who they really are, the reason they're there with him now is because so many of them are from the margins. So many of them have been forgotten. So many of them have been left behind. And what they've seen in Jesus is more than a free meal they've seen a representation of God's shalom, that indeed there will be food on their tables, roofs over their heads. They will have more than enough, their family will be fed, and there will be the the sense of peace, not just the absence of war, but the sense of true peace, of true shalom, where all of God's children can live in joy and community. I think that's why they're there. I think that's why they're so excited. Finally, they're saying the Messiah has come the era of peace, of true shalom is making its way down the side of the Mount of Olives. It's Rachel Held Evans who says that the church is God's way of saying, I'm having a banquet and you're invited. The messed up and the mismatched, all of you are invited. Here, have some wine. What a simple yet profound truth she's naming there the mismatched, the, the, the misunderstood, the mistaken, the messed up. In other words, you and me are invited to be there at that banquet. I think that's what they're experiencing. That's what they're looking for. Well, now let's shift the scene again. Only now let's go over to the coast, to Caesarea Maritima. It means the city of Caesar by the sea. That's what Caesarea Maritima means. It was designed and built in honor of Caesar by Herod the Great 40 years before. It is now being used as the palace for the Roman governor. That's where Pilate, you remember Pilate from the story, right? The Roman governor of Palestine, that's where he lives. Consider the view. I've been there a couple of times. They're just ruins now, but you can imagine what it's like. There was an indoor freshwater pool where the water was probably recycled every single day. There's a wide open terrace that overlooks the Mediterranean Sea in the distance, allowing cool breezes in the evening to come off of the water and to cool the palace itself. There's, it's filled with indoor gardens, magnificent frescoes and more. Pilate has to lead that beautiful, tranquil place to go up the hill into Jerusalem to follow those dusty, dirty, hot roads and make his way into the crowded city. It's a dangerous thing to do, especially during Passover. Why is that true? Well, normally in Jerusalem, there's a population in Jesus' time of about 40,000 people. During Passover, that 40,000 would swell to 200,000, five times as many people there. And not only that, why are they there? To celebrate Passover a holiday that remembers the freedom that the Hebrews experienced when they escaped slavery from the evil regime of the Pharaoh in Egypt thousands of years before. The very seeds for rebellion against Rome are likely to be planted every time this this Passover is celebrated, every time these pilgrims come from all over the ancient Near East to remember the freedom that they once had. And so you can see how difficult it can be for Pilate and his soldiers. He's bringing a garrison with him to face this overwhelmingly huge crowd. But I wanna be careful here. Sometimes the gospels feel like they present Pilate as a sympathetic character. One of them says he just washes his hands of the death of Jesus and blames it on the people. He doesn't seem to get too much, he seems to get sympathy from them. I would think differently about this though if I were you. Pilate was a brute. He would kill anyone who was in his way if he thought it was going to weaken his political power. In fact, there's a story that the Gospel of Luke hints at from a few weeks before Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem when hundreds of Jews are killed in the temple square. You see, they were upset because Pilate had added an additional tax so that he could build an aqueduct to bring more water into Jerusalem. They protested this tax. They didn't like it. They were against it. They didn't care what the reason was. They were overtaxed and they were going to stand up against him. And so Pilate, in an act that seemed to be magnanimous, invited all these people who were upset, hundreds of them, to the temple square. He had a stage built where he said a speech would be given to explain why this tax was necessary, why this aqueduct would help them. What the crowd didn't know was that dozens and dozens of Pilate's soldiers were hidden in among the crowd, out of uniform, covered in cloaks. Underneath their cloaks, they wielded clubs, the kind of club that could kill a person with a single blow. When Pilate stood up on the stage, it wasn't to begin his speech. It was a signal to his men in the crowd to kill as many as they could. And they did so, and the ensuing stampede killed even more. It was a brutal, ugly, horrible thing. Don't give any sympathy to to Pilate, none whatsoever. He would kill anyone who got in his way in order to maintain his power. It's Bruce Chilton, a great historian, who says in his book called The Herods, that when Jesus makes his way down from the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley and up into the city of Jerusalem, it's a political act. I agree, it is. Stanley Hauerwas, who's a very good scholar, he agrees as well. Hauerwas is the kind of scholar that can irritate conservative evangelical Christians on the right and progressive mainline Christians on the left and everyone in between. That's when you know you're a good scholar when everybody's arguing with you all the time about different angles of your perspective. He believes it was a political act as well, but for him, the politics of Jesus about using the power of the source of life itself to bring life to the community. To bring that shalom into reality. Oh, I know. Politics makes us nervous. It's the Jewish philosopher. The mixture of politics and religion makes us nervous. It's the Jewish philosopher, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who says that Religion always begins in mysticism and ends in politics. Oh, we Americans, we get nervous about that, and we should, for good reason. But let's listen to John Buchanan, a a great preacher who used to be here in Columbus, spent many years in Chicago. Uh, He'll help us understand this. Let's put his words on the screen. It makes us a little uncomfortable, the mixture of politics and religion. But that is precisely what happens on Palm Sunday. The gentle teacher and healer from the countryside becomes a political activist and on this day forward stamps Christian faith with a distinctly political hue. It is a topic no less controversial today than it was 2,000 years ago. His words are true. And we do need to be careful. Anytime there is a violent mixture of religion and politics, we've seen religion at its worst when that happens. And yet, what we learn from Jesus a day or two after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem is what this politics looks like. He reminds us in his teaching, it's in Matthew 25, just four chapters from where we read today in Matthew 21. Maybe it's Monday of Holy Week, maybe it's Tuesday, but he gives a very clear teaching. It's the parable of the sheep and the goats. You remember it, don't you? Jesus says, any time you feed someone who's hungry. Anytime you give water to someone who is thirsty. Anytime you give clothing to someone who is naked. Anytime you welcome and accept the transgendered person into your community. Anytime you do these things for Christ's sake, for God's sake, it is as though you're doing it for Jesus himself. It is as though you're doing it for God. Anytime we do this, You see, Palm Sunday calls us to what one preacher says is a courageous voice in the community, to live within communal faith and find in that communal faith the strength we need to take conspicuous actions, to welcome the stranger, to welcome the different, to go to the margins, to the edges, to wherever we need to go in the name of God with a word of hope. We've seen that at work in our world in the last 100 years. Go back to the 1930s when Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the few, a tiny minority of preachers in the German church who stood up with a strong and courageous voice against the evil of Hitler's Nazism. Tragically, Pastor Bonhoeffer lost his life on what would turn out to be the last day of World War II. Move forward to 1944, when a young man in South Africa named Nelson Mandela organized and stood up against the evils of apartheid. Move forward to the 1960s, when Martin Luther King, that great Baptist preacher, stood in Washington, D.C., and proclaimed with one voice for the entire world to hear, I have a dream. We've seen this at work, my friends. We've seen what happens when a community of faith can speak with courage and conspicuous action to its community, to its neighbor, to their neighbors, to the world at large. Well, it might bring turmoil. It, it might bring seismic change. The Greek word for turmoil is seismos. It means earthquake. It might bring earth-shaking change to our world. That's what Jesus intended to do so that this life this full life, this godly life, this life of shalom could be given to all. I hope you heard the word that was read from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi just before the sermon began. He wrote to them to remind them, and this was a word that was written probably 20 or 30 years before any of the Gospels were written. This is some of the earliest earliest theology of the church he wrote to the church in Philippi and said Jesus did not consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped instead he emptied himself and took on the form of a slave in doing this Jesus revealed the very heart of God And Jesus revealed the very heart and nature of our faith. We are called to empty ourselves and give ourselves away in service to the world. And that's why on this day we sing of a love so amazing, so divine. It demands my soul, my life, my all.